Okay, hello, and thank you for watching episode seven of Dano Says So. Um, my guest today is somebody I've known for over 30 years. I first met him as a fanzine editor, and Plain Truth came before Dear Jesus, yeah? Yeah. So that would be when we met. Um, he came into much big, bigger notoriety later as frontman for Born Against, Men's Recovery Project, Wrangler Brutes. But in the many, many years since then, it's pretty much been writing. That's kind of been your tentpole. And... <laughs> Out of three books, the ones I'm really going to focus on, the one I'm really going to focus on today is his most recent. That's Mutations, The Many Strange Faces of Hardcore Punk. Oh, Sam McPheeters, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely, sir. Okay, um, right off the bat, and if it's not clear what I'm asking, I'll put some flesh on it. But why this book? Why this subject matter? Why now, at this point in your life? Mm. I realized that I was in a point where I was forgetting things. And so if I was going to do it, this was the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I had made enough progress on my mental health that I was capable of writing it. Um, but also when it started, it was just supposed to be a collection of previous things I'd written. And it was just going to be a book about music. There was I mean, like it, a seems, it seems like it's an anthology, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like an anthology of previous work with a few fresh pieces mixed in. Most of it's new stuff. I'd say really? less than a quarter is old stuff. The main one is that Doc Dart um, profile, which was much longer. And I thought about putting the longer version in, but there was no need. I mean, 8,000 words is a lot and 11,000 words is kind of too much unless it's something sensational. And I didn't cut anything that couldn't have been cut. Um, and there's some other small pieces in there, but the small pieces were largely rewritten. Like um, th there's a chapter about Green Day, which was part of a not wonderful Vice column that I did. And it wasn't really anything when I did it. And then I realized that could be my way in to discuss that whole world, the whole Gilman Street world. Which is, what, which is, what, largely, which is what largely that piece becomes about to me. You know? Yeah, I just use it as an excuse to discuss that, which is how I treated most of the the band stuff. There, a lot of those pieces aren't necessarily about the bands. And the Doc Dart piece is about Doc Dart, but it's also a way for me to explore a sort of a similar period in my life when I did things that were a little parallel to Doc's shenanigans. Well, here's why I, why I asked you why this book and why now is, I don't know whether to call it uh, defensiveness or that I catch a certain vulnerability, but there, and I noticed that when you and I, last time I saw you in person in 2009, but there's a very clear distinction you make between your years actively involved in punk rock and now, and it seems like you feel damaged by some of the things that went on then, or maybe that's self-inflicted, or maybe just vulnerable to the results of some of those things, and I don't want to overanalyze but it informs the voice, and in my opinion, in a really interesting way. I definitely thought that I had a, um, <clears throat> a unique take on it and that I'm, I don't really celebrate anything that I've done, mm -hmm. which is more just about me and my character. I'm that way also with any other output I've had, writing, art. Um, although I like the books that I've done, I'm aware that there's going to come a point where I probably won't. But that also means that I'm really excited about the new thing that I'm working on. Um, also, a really weird, everybody gets weird things if they're in the public eye. I'm 
guessing that you probably have some weird things that people approach you with. Be like, how did that become a thing about me? And the, the thing about me, Sam, mm-hmm. is that I hate my old bands, but I don't. I've never said that. I just said I didn't like them. And there's obviously a lot of there's a world of difference in between those two things. Um, and so I, I, everything that I felt I needed to state, I just stated I can't there's nothing more I could add to most of the really vulnerable stuff in that book. Mm -hmm. But that's an interesting piece of feedback for me only because it's very rare. I find with writing that I get any feedback from one person to the next. That's in any way identical. Everyone reading is so subjective, apparently way more subjective than music and um, people just bring their own stuff to it. I mean, it's, fascinating in some ways feedback on any of these books there was a thing and so the first novel i published Luma ruin mm-hmm. old friend from high school read it and uh he wrote me he's like i'm sure you're getting a lot of feedback about the big mistake in the book and i was like no what, what is it he's like well okay. you know myth Mythbusters really shattered the whole thing and it was about one little detail on like mm-hmm. page 96 about a vehicle hitting a wall going at 50 miles something really like mathy Right, and it was, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, I didn't know what to say. I wanted you to play." Like, yeah, I, yeah, you're right. Like, that's. Oh, what was I thinking? You were polite about it. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason not. I don't take any of that stuff uh, personally. Also, there's a there is a massive mistake in mutations that no one's caught, and it's the weirdest thing. It's so I'm not going to point it out, but it's just a factual thing about something that doesn't matter, but that I got wrong. And it probably drives you batshit. It does, yes. Yeah. As well, if as I can, I'm still reading it. I'm, I'm more than I'm well over halfway through. But as I was sitting here and going, shit, I'm three hours out from interviewing Sam, I started cherry picking a few pieces in the back third. Mm-hmm. And, um, the reason I said I talked about vulnerability or even regret or dis- distaste is you can be kind of savage and be kind of direct, probably to the point of damaging some relationships and your assessment of things, but you're no less brutal to yourself. You know, which is, I think, wise and also probably endearing to the reader. Um, I'm way more brutal with myself than anyone else, but I'm conscious of the fact that emotionally I feel like the that gives me the right to critique everyone else, but I know mm-hmm. that's not really how life works, you know. Um, I tried very hard to pull my punches. This was not, it's not meant to read as a book in which I settle old scores because I don't care. Mm-hmm. And also that would be really boring. Um, I had one person that I needed to say something shitty about because it's a shitty person mm-hmm. and they're in there in a little footnote and it's just kind of like get in, get out, two sentences. It doesn't, it doesn't come across that way to me, I think partially because particularly a lot of stuff that has to do with, with borderline feud type material with old hardcore bands, man, most of these fucking people are raising kids by now. You know, and I gotta believe You'd that even guys hold on to old beats, but yes, they do. Because I should think I come across some of my supposed beefs from back in the day, and they're some of the funnest people to run into. It's disappointing when then later I'll see them resurrecting it. But I mean, the classic one, the classic piece of straight edge, you know, blasphemy would be sitting, you know, sitting five men, five middle aged men across a, deep across a bar. It's Dan and the guys in Jane of Straight. You know, <laughs> I, I, I was unaware that there was a problem there. 
they say, but that, that's Southern California garbage, and like the way you like to frame a lot of these conflicts, it's completely unimportant. But no, we spent the 80s despising each other. And I don't think we're going to attend any, I don't think we're going to attend each other's birthdays now. Yeah. But we were able, but we were able to have the ironic beer, and it was a good laugh, you know. And that's Hopefully what I'm, I'm saying is I would like to think, with, yeah. I would like to think that people age out on a lot of the things that we obsessed about when we were younger. Yeah, me too. Yeah, absolutely. Here's here's my weird thing. This is follow up on that thought. Um, one of the other pieces of feedback that I get from this book is people use the word cringe a lot. Not that the book makes them cringe, mm -hmm. but that I'm discussing memories that are cringy. And um, I've had to undergo a rather violent assessment of the last 30 years just since the end of May. So just in the last, what, six weeks, seven weeks since Floyd's murder. Mm -hmm. um, that I, I spent a lot of time cringing, for lack of a better word, at a lot of my like angry young man posturing. And some of that I'm realizing now was correct. Like there was a column I wrote for MRR at the same time you and I were doing our columns, mm -hmm. right after the Gulf War. And I ended it with the sentence, fuck you, America. And I've always been like, oh God, that's so cringy. And then a month ago, I was like, oh, wait, no, that's the only rational response to what happened. I was correct then. I have been deluded for the last 30 years in thinking that there's anything in there to be ashamed of. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a rational thing. Well, and it's just like a soap bubble popping. It's, it's been a really weird experience that I haven't discussed outside of this talk now, because who wants to hear from me discussing that it know? has been of the interviews that are upcoming for this thing you know and my tens of millions of followers uh it's been one of the interviews that's been more asked about it. and i mean there's on the one hand it's because a lot of people have fond memories of your absurdist sense of humor serving them up some real curveballs in life and i think also just because you have a unique voice. So my, I would counter that with, you'd be surprised how many people want to hear your thinking on something like that. And I thought about it. I thought about talking about born against and talking about, you know, patriotic hymns and all of that, and how it sits against now. But I kind of want to respect the fact that I'm pretty impressed with you as an author. And as a guy who's fairly egotistical about his own use of the language, I don't say that to very many people. All right. Um, you and I have a really weird relationship. Is, the fact of the matter is, the world's on fire, and as long as I've known you, you're a damn smart guy with a pretty wide with a pretty wide worldview. So how are you? How are you rolling with things right now? Oh, I'm fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's fucked up. Um, I have always had really serious anxiety and depression issues, which I discussed some in that book. Hopefully, not too much. Like a little dose of that stuff goes a long way and you can weigh mm. down i could weigh down my writing by really going heavier into it but um all of my shit has just exploded since this happened and uh i noticed going to protest my anxiety was just not manageable that i just really felt like something horrible was going to happen i'm not exactly agoraphobic but i get it i get how people wind up never leaving their house Mm -hmm. Did you have, um, did you experience any older man's guilt or even old male guilt specifically? Because there's a part of me, out of all the places that I've lived in, Oakland and, and Long Beach are probably the two most dear to me. And things really popped off in Long Beach. And I didn't go down because I didn't really know whether I'm supposed to be that author of that space in that moment. 
or whether I'm supposed to use my mileage to comment on it. Yeah, it's very confusing. Um, one of the weirdest things is it, before all of this happened in first stage COVID, so really April, mm -hmm. I started reading the most horrible shit I could find about white supremacy, um, partially as research for something and partially because I'm really interested in the question of where the bottom is. Like, does that make sense? You know, like we know where the top is. We know the names. Well, the, what I'm translating that as is probably not what you mean, which is to me the obvious bottom would be, you know, a replication in 1930s stories, you know, late 1930s behaviors, you know, hitting the United States. Right. Okay. Right. So, yeah. So I, I read, um, I wound up reading a bunch of books on lynching photography. And um, one of the things that I took away from it is just that, that I still, as someone who has been, I feel like studying white supremacy for my entire adult life and writing about it, for decades that I don't really understand the depths of it. So in the 1930s, even by the 1930s, so lynching had been going on at that point for 40 years, the way that we know it. Um, and so already thousands of black people had been lynched in the US. Even then in the 30s, anti-lynching activists couldn't, they couldn't approach the subject head on. They had to be oblique about it because black lives were so disposable. And so the way that they came up to fight lynching was to say, oh, lynching hurts white people. And there were these phrases um, like for well, they every... Gave white, they, gave, they gave white people in skin in the game as a method of resistance. Well, sure, in some cases. But what I mean more is that anti-lynching activists were explicitly saying the biggest damage like, if you look at lynching photos, you're horrified by all the white people standing around, sometimes smiling. Sometimes there's kids mm -hmm. smiling at these public events that thousands of people came to. And so what anti-lynching activists were saying is, this damages the white soul more. It's only a, a moment of pain uh, for the oh, black God. people, but it's a lifetime of, of psychic turmoil. Uh, but that's how they had to do it. That's how they had to market it. Because even by the 1930s, like my grandparents were alive then, mm -hmm. they couldn't just come out and be like, what the fuck? You can't pull, you can't do like ISIS stuff in the middle of the town square and take photos of it. That's wrong. Right. Um, so I had all this stuff I wanted to say about it, but I wasn't quite sure what to do with the material. And then this happened and I thought maybe I should just shut up for a while and try to read as much as I can. But yeah, I don't know, uh, it's just... Um, yeah, but knowing, knowing, knowing you, you'll do something creative with it. Uh, uh, hopefully, I mean, yeah. I haven't done much today. Well, damn it. This, this no, is my big event you, for the day, what are, you doing, what are you doing talking to me, God damn it. Yeah, all right, bye. Um, you and I have known each other a long time. I'm thinking 87 or 88. Yeah, 88. Okay. Which means you're one of the very few people that knows of me before I was band guy. I met you when I was like fanzine weirdo. At the risk, at the risk of insulting you and your achievements, which sounds very lofty, and I think you know I wouldn't blow any smoke at you for, with your blood-stained door behind you, but my biggest points of admiration and the biggest smiles I still get are still from fanzine guy. Because you pulled some moves and lobbed some moments in self-generated press 
that weren't anything like I'd seen, and I was pretty well versed in that world. I mean, just even stupid shit. Okay, there's a you did an interview with Verbal Assault when you were fanzine there, okay? Yeah. But you framed it as if, and I don't know whether you were, but as if you were all together in a Denny's or something. And you interrupt the, tent, the text of the interview to suggest that one of them ordered a, you know, stopped order a chilled stein of goat's blood. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I did well, an interview with Soulside, and, and, and at the end of the interview, then I said, um, then the interview descended into an all-out orgy of fisting, fucking, and sucking. I don't know those guys at all well <laughs> enough to make that joke. That's not appropriate. And I forgot about it. And years later, I opened it. I was like, oh, old fanzines. This is fun. And then I just like, you know. Well, do, you remember, do you remember Josh Stanton? Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, that, that kind of shit. And this is why you're on the East Coast, essentially a phone or a pen pal. That kind of shit used to double us over. You know, mm. and that was, that's necessary and powerful. I think not, not meaning like powerful, like, oh, it has some meaning, but it suggests a talent or a wit or a flair for the absurd that most people would not have instinctively run with. You know, okay. you're going with that and not full blown mental illness. I thank you. Uh, right. If you want to frame it as mental illness and that serves you some purpose, that's fine, but I'm going to call talent talent. Um, okay. There have been people who I have, uh, dealt with in this thing who have a who have a real talent for curating enemies i have a certain limited limited talent for it you're coming across to me right now like you're aware that you do that that you that you're capable of birthing long-term resentments does that bother you uh i mean hopefully it's in the past um, oh, which is something we kind of already talked about here but you know honesty honesty is probably always going to have its tax and particularly really acerbic honesty you know yeah, um, I'm not nuts about how much I antagonize people during Born Against days. And um, I'm a side thinking, question, but was that weird? Because I feel like I had a real personality switch back then. And you knew me before that switch happened. So was that... Yeah, but here's the thing. I didn't have much contact with you during Born Against. You know, Born Against is the exact same time as 411. We were both constantly on the road and we didn't play together. We stayed at your house once, didn't we? Yeah, you did. You did. And I, I left that. a diary at your house. I remember that. Did you? I don't yeah. remember that. Okay, so good. You guys stayed at my house when, by then, my mother had passed away, and my house was a neglected, dog-piss-stained nightmare of a place to shack up. But there you were. Unlike everywhere yeah. else we were staying at on tour, yes. Good point, good um, point. Yeah. You know, I had a weird, this is, I'm, I'll, this is way too far off from your question, sorry, but I don't think I ever told you. I had a really weird experience leaving your house in 88. Okay. I had a train ride across the desert back to Albuquerque to my grandmother's. And I had just bought those plaid pants. Uh, you and I went out somewhere and I bought these golfing pants. They're the ones I'm wearing in my, in my photo in Mutations. And I realized that, that I wasn't the kind of person who would wear weird pants but I could become that kind of person. And so on that train ride, I've only had this happen to me a few other times in my life, two other times where I just like, my brain reorganized itself. And I think part of that was as a result of that trip, which is so weird. You were in Huntington Beach at the time, right? I was in Huntington. We made a run to San Francisco. I don't know whether you frame it this way in your memory, but we hopped to train the night, the night after my mother's funeral. No, I remember that. I remember yeah. showing up and you telling me and, and uh, me being kind of shocked and saying, like, do you want to not go somewhere? And 
But uh, I think I talk about that trip to San Francisco a little bit in mutations, um, yeah. where I mentioned you you brought me into the MRR office. Yeah, I noticed that you kind of gracefully did so without doing so by name. That's good because it would have been a weird that whole framing would have been a weird element in that story. You know, you know, there was a point I went through the book. I had a bunch of people I mentioned, and it felt like it read wrong. So you got excised from that. Sorry. Um, uh, I'm you know, also though, my head is still enormous. I'll be fine. We're all very concerned about your ego, so that was kind of like... Yeah, my subtlety and my retiring nature is a problem. Yes. Um, wait, we're talking about enemies? Uh, it, it's, it's a bummer. I'm just kind of... What I'm doing is I'm probing, probing for guilt or regret or things like that. I because feel I feel like I've kind of made a career out of that at this point, haven't I? That's the thing, and I don't think it's necessary. It's, it's a funny thing. Yeah, no, you're right. I agree with you. It shouldn't. I need to... Um, I feel like it was necessary in writing mutations mm -hmm. because there are so many books about hardcore that are just celebratory mm -hmm. and whatever, that's fine to a degree, but that's really not me. And I think it's really important for someone to write from the perspective I which is like, this is a great thing. That doesn't mean that, that there's like glory that I want you to take in because I don't feel that way. Um, so there's another chapter, if, if and when there are more, the book's in the second printing right now, um, at some other point in my life, in a subsequent printing, I might add a few chapters. There should have been a chapter on Kill Rock Stars, just because they're interesting, and I was, right. all my bands were on that label. But there really should have been a chapter about my record label, which I didn't put in there. And one thing I was, I just ran out of time, and I was talking about with a friend, and I realized, well, if I write a thing about Vermiform records, there can't be anything putting down Vermiform. Because, like, I kind of overplayed or? my hand with that shtick. Mm -hmm. No, well, hmm, no, no, I, I like all the artists on that label. No, I'm saying if you take down the label, do you, um, I'm saying if you take down the label, you, do you think that by osmosis you would have been taking down the artists? Hmm. I think there's a risk that it would be perceived that way. But also, I, don't, I just don't want to write it that way. I think there's a lot of funny things to write about running a record label, especially the way I did it, which was not cool. People, a band came over once in like 1998. It was like, good news, guys. I got the uh, alternative press to fuck off. They're not going to write about you. And I was genuinely happy. I was like, I did it. They're like, what? You mean you got us, you, you took press away from us? I was like, yeah. Isn't that cool? Uh -huh. And that's not exactly how you run a label. There was a point where my dad came to visit and it was this first experience like, oh, I run a business. I could have mm -hmm. my, I could have my father, you know, come check this out. And it was really cool. And then late in the conversation, I started, he picked up some record. I'm like, oh, that's a noise record. And it was just the needle scratch noise. Right. He was like, what, what do you mean noise? And as I was saying, I started sweating. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's just a bunch of noise, Dad. It's cool. Like, mm, that's not how you run a business. Um, what was the question? I don't remember the question. Let's get, let's get back. I, I like right. where it landed. Let's get back to So back to the message. You said something in there, and you talked. You mentioned humor almost as an aside about how to write something. But it's a necessary ingredient in most of your stuff. And there tends to be there tends to be a rhythm where where sometimes it's just the repetitiveness and the subtle irony of something makes it hilarious. I'm thinking specifically 
there is a diatribe in mutations where you try to define what punk rock means to so, means to people. And you list you list a good at least 10 lines of definitions and sort of refer to the fact that you'll find somebody who believes passionately that this is what punk rock is, and you'll find somebody who finds e feels equal passion the opposite. But it just goes on and on, and they're all dead on, and just the volume of it starts to be funny. That takes a certain ear, that takes a certain awareness. So uh, congratulations on that. Um, thanks. It, there's one, really what it takes is time. Like, I can't, I can't write funny in real time. Really? What I can do is very slowly identify jokes and place them. But um, I've, deadline writing kills me because I can't put any jokes in it. Yeah, well, here's the funny thing to me. You've, you've written a lot more on assignment than I have. Yeah, right after my divorce, I took a stab at freelance journalism. Oh, that's right. Did, we talked and, about that. Yeah. And did maybe three or four pieces. And the editing process and being at the mercy of editors enraged me to the point where I was like, thank God I grew up punk rock because whenever this bug gets a hold of me, I'll just create a new fucking website and do a new thing. Whenever, the, yeah. the, you know, I did a, you know, I did a 527 on a website during Occupy. I did a political website during the general election before that. And if yeah, yeah, I remember. I'm going to about music, I can find somebody to back me on those. You, like, for instance, you've done a lot of musical critique. Were those pieces largely on assignment? I mean, was Doc Dart on assignment? No, Doc Dart was, um, I reached a point where I just got, it was two things. I got really fed up because I knew I wasn't going to get any work anywhere. And um, I knew there was this great story. So I just bought, I contacted him through Alternative Tentacles, bought a cheap plane ticket, got myself a place to stay in Ann Arbor. And I just went and did it with no buyer. And then it sat for a year and a half. No one wanted it. I couldn't get anyone to look at it. And um, it just happened to be this weird semi-coincidence that a really good friend of mine who's also an incredible editor wound up working at Vice and had offered me something. And at a certain point, I realized I no longer hated Vice and that it could be a good outlet for it. Vice who shot down probably no less than 10 pitches from yours truly. Oh, shit. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. I never got through the door there. We can have an offline discussion about that. <laughs> well, let's have an offline you, discussion about you, that. You have some fans there. Well, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll take that up at a different time. In any um, case, this is about you and this was about the Dr. Art piece. Right. It's horrible getting rejected, but it's also horrible dealing with editors. Everything I, found, I, found editing, I found editors much more troubling than rejections. Well, the thing about editors, my take on it was um, you can hit a plateau where you get a good editor and then suddenly everything clicks into place. Like having a good editor is magic. And that's what I had with Jesse for a couple of years. Um, it's someone who really gets that they're working with you and they want to they make you not look like an asshole versus, uh, I mean, I could, I could, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone on horror stories of editors i've had editors change words on me um i had i had editors change the gist of a story about a family learning to move on after their father was killed in mosul and they completely changed the slant of the story and what they chose to excise from it and everything else to the point where the woman the mother in the family was furious with me and that was kind of my final straw with editors yeah yeah, the story, um, yeah, the story added to their pain instead of 
helping them along. Yes. Oh my God. I can only imagine. I mean, at least for my things, it was like someone made me look like an idiot writing about Eric Clapton. Well, so what, you know, but um, that's horrible. Were you given a chance to look over the edits or did they foist them on you? The process got long because I kept fighting them tooth and nail. They were taking, I did, I turned in a family, I turned in an article called Family of the Fallen and it was intended for Father's Day release by Emus Publishing. They do glossies all over the country. They're based out of Chicago, right? And by the time it printed, they ran it as Iraq, a love story. And it was about the man who had come into her life and was helping her raise her kids now and who had known and who had known and who had known the slain father and their relationship wasn't strong or in a good place or, or certain to survive. And the editor was determined to frame it as a, as a feel good story. And, you know, she found love and the only, the only man who understood her loss had nothing to do with what I fucking turned in. Yeah. You know, um, do you that's feel me taking, that that's me taking a big chunk of this space? I apologize. Do, do you feel that an editor like that needs to be punished? Because I, here's where the enemies thing gets weird. I, I will maintain lists of people who wronged me like that. And mm-hmm. it seems important, not for me emotionally, but for society that that person is punished at some point. No, I just walked away. Okay. I, I pretty much, I pretty much vowed never to submit another article at that point to anybody at that point. Which, yeah. which, I mean, you and I have friends who have accomplished a lot in journalism and, you know, A.C. Thompson, people like that. Yeah, of course. Well, but they're going to tell, one of the first things Adam told me when I was started messing around and submitting pieces, was, this is never going to be any way to make a living. That the only money oh, is in television and that's not what you're sniffing around. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird um, that there are also plateaus within that world, the film and television world, where writers are taken really seriously, but there's more avenues where you are the lowest person yeah. there. Um, and you, you exist solely to give them content that can then be stepped on and besmirched with your name attached to it. It's, it's just, it's nuts. It's like the whole thing with uh, interns at hospitals having to work 30 hour shifts. Like why, why is that? And the answer is, well, right. everybody's done it. And, I mean, you wouldn't do that with an airline pilot, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's just, there's all this stuff in the world that just has momentum and it keeps going. And I feel like that relationship of the editor versus writer is it's definitely part of that. Well, something like, something like mutations, how big a role did post Sam editing play in it? Almost none. Okay. Um, There's one thing that's different, different about the way you and I write is I was reading old interviews with you, even though I, I thought about just doing this thing cold to see how off the conversation would be since we don't really see each other not remotely often. Invited you to several of my Christmas parties, Dan. Yeah, I know you have. Um, anyway. We're only an hour plus away, so. Yeah, well, you brutally outshined me at the only spoken word we've ever done together, so fuck off. I'm kidding. But anyway, uh, where was I going with that? God damn it. Oh, the editing process, this and that. The, you mentioned somewhere in some of the interviews that I read today spending, you know, 10 months or years even sometimes on a rough draft. I barely do rough drafts at all. How do you mean that? Meaning I write much shorter pieces than you do, but I also tend to, other than looking for mistakes in grammar, run my stuff pretty pure and close to the original impulse. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's bad. I mean, my, 
all of my writing rules and techniques, whenever people ask me for advice on it, like it's so tailored to me, you know, like you have to be me. I wasn't fucking faulted. I was asking about it because I'm. Yeah, no, no. I'm saying it's interesting that everyone is so different that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Like people occasionally have glimpsed my computer screen and I use color coding for everything. And it looks like a crazy person. It looks like a manifesto or something. Mm But, and also I use spreadsheets. Like there's just stuff that's really? just me. And so that makes total sense that that would work for you. You're saying you thought that that did work? No, it does. It's yeah. writing. Writing is my, is a larger passion than music for me, but I took nine years off from music and went back to it and going back. I didn't it was, know that. Yeah. I took about oh. nine years off and I do a band now and going back to doing music in a present tense band was probably the healthiest decision I've made in the last 20 years. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for one thing, I mean, I was going through a really bad time, and I wasn't making enough noise. I wasn't opening the valve enough. Yeah. So it was I remember there was a time when it really helped me to just know that I would have a a good half hour a day of being able to yell at people. Exactly. Like that really helped. Yeah. And yeah. and one of the reasons that this podcast that you and I are doing right now exists is because quarantine silenced that. And I'm not really writing right now, and I just needed some noise. And it, yeah. I, it literally got to me where it was like everything that I'm picking up through mainstream media and that I'm reading online is powerfully negative. And while I don't expect to get a lot of uplifting content from people, I at least want to be able to discuss the world and my passions and the creative passions of people that I know and people right. that I'm curious about, which is why there's a lot of old farts on this thing. Right. Because these are literally people I wanted to talk to again with a few exceptions men in their late 60s like both of us exactly yeah a lot of colostomy bags off screen in this thing oh my god there's like three on the floor right now hey um i'm not going to get a good segue into this but do you remember that you and i were going to write a book about hardcore like 30 years ago I, well i mean i remember a lot of different things tossed around that specifically vaguely rings yeah. a bell uh, it wasn't nothing got written nothing was planned but i remember i called you i was really excited like we should write a book about hardcore together and i don't know if you're being polite but you were like yeah let's do it and then i told adam and a few other friends and they're like no don't do that what was what was their take on why not to do it their take on it was that you will never be able to express this thing to other people um you're gonna bring in squares like it it wasn't a very rational argument which in Adam's defense, I wasn't making rational arguments at that point in my life either. In life in general, and I always knew you better than I knew Adam, again, as far as these trends that we'll have in this thing where you, you know, hopscotch and touch base every 10 to 15 years. You know, I haven't seen Adam in 25 years, but I always remember him having a little bit harsher filter and a little bit shorter fuse than you. Uh, that honestly might say more about how I behaved in California. Like it's almost like I had different personalities depending on where I was. Oh yeah. Southern California was real, like be on your best behavior type stuff. What I remember is staying in the New York apartment, you know, the one that was pretty, pretty goddamn close to CB's. Yeah. When no, when no front answer stayed there, I remember Adam proselytizing a lot that weekend. Oh yeah. So much. That was prime Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. That place. There are a lot of strange legendary came out of that trip. That was one of the better. That three-day run back east was one of the smarter things we ever did. That was a fun trip. I have some weird photos from that trip. If you have them, send them. Maybe I'll figure out a way to weave them into this thing. All right. 
Yeah. Um, we're getting we're getting around the time where you and I were talking about these things can go on forever. But there is something I wanted to ask you about. It's just a really broad philosophical question. Um, you mentioned several times in in mutations a distrust of community or a fear of the notion of community. Yeah, you know, being part of things, right? How does that jive with the fact that I mean, your whole adult life now, you've been creating things for public consumption, which you know. Well, many of those things. The kinship uh, with the reader, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, good question. I'm not quite sure of the answer. Um, the root of that goes back to something that I have not discussed in public, which is that I grew up in a cult. And I haven't really, I've been taking some time to process that. Are you being um, serious with me? Because I can't tell. Yeah, I am. I, I okay. know that's weird, right? Yeah, no, I, I did. Uh, there's, I mean, it wasn't like a death cult, you know, mm -hmm. but it was, it was bad shit happened to adults and to kids, including me. And it's mm -hmm. taken me a long time to come to terms with it. That was my introduction to community. And I, all of the things that I saw in that world, so we're talking about kindergarten to fourth grade, five years, were just replicated over and over again. First in my college experience and then in like the squats that we stayed and, mm -hmm. and uh, all that weird uh, like actual serious hierarchical community stuff in the East Bay or even in San Francisco, um, ABC No Rio, all those things kind of connect back to that early bad experience I had okay. as a kid. And um, at some point in my life, I'll probably figure out how to write about it, but I'm not in any rush to do it. Although a lot of those memories are getting a little wiggly now. Um, but there is definitely a, a contradiction there. Mm -hmm. I just think the, the answer to your question maybe is that I tried to be, the parts that I enjoyed the most were private. I had more fun spending a summer literally it just in my room by myself doing a 20 page letter set booklet for the born against cd right then i did almost at any point when i was on the road with born against uh okay. and, and i remember being a little puzzled by that um so it just seemed weird to not mention that in the book but i guess i would imagine that without that crucial piece of information about my childhood that it wouldn't really make sense I also noticed that everyone else really gets a lot out of community. That that's just a, like a recurring thing. And it's well, like on that. We, we should go a little bit long on this one. I think that, I think this is good meat uh, to flex that out a little bit more. You and Aaron comic book bus get into an almost identical conversation with a little less, a little less backstory on your end where you're sort of comparing experiences and perceptions of maximum profit roles. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Thing is, we can distrust that kind of community. We don't have the same life experiences, the same makeup. But I felt on the outside in a lot of these remarkable spaces, the Bay Area in general, maximum rock and roll epicenter. I felt on the outside, but recognized. I felt square peggish, but I felt privileged to be up against like just this heaving mass of extraordinary personalities and remarkable achievements, right? And I wouldn't treat it. You know, Bay Area people and people I met through Bay Area people make up a huge part of this part of this, this series of podcasts, right? But conversely, hmm. conversely, youth crew doesn't make me feel that way at all. You know, my connections through revelation records and a lot of those associations, I don't, and I wasn't always on the outside of that. 
but I don't necessarily. Yeah, you were, appreciate you were kind of like our I... spy into that world for a while. I remember. <laughs> Where I get what I get from, I guess the point I'm making, which I don't know if I knew what I intended to say when I started, is I think it depends on the community for me. Wait, I'm you know, sorry. Can you repeat I that? I think at the end of the day, I'm sort of an intentional outlier myself. Maybe not to the same degree, but I think it's based on the character of the community. It's a case by case basis, you know. Yeah, it's um, what I try, was trying to communicate in the book is I distrust communities. It doesn't mean I dislike them. It's, mm-hmm. it's strictly uh, it, it's a personal thing that just goes back to like when the factory settings were put in. Like it's not going to change at this point. And it makes me genuinely sad that I don't think I'm going to be part of any more communities in a serious way. I'm just more comfortable doing things in a solo way. Um, I, it was cool doing this book tour. I had fun, but there were a lot of things that there were, there were times, there've been multiple times, but even on this last book tour a couple months ago where I thought like, you know, maybe am I on the spectrum? Like why, you know, like it's kind of work to make eye contact with people and my emotional responses are off. And I don't think that's it. I just, I don't think I am autistic, but there's some stuff that happened to me as a kid that sort pretty, of, it's pretty sinister that I smile when you said that, but I, was, I don't think so either. Go okay. On. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, anyway, that's what I was trying to communicate is that I, I really, in a non-ironic, non-sarcastic way, I, I do envy people who really get a lot out of communities. I wish mm-hmm. I was one of them, but the reasons that I don't are pretty bedrock and uh, have pretty kind of horrific details that I'll okay. Probably get around to writing about it at some point. All right. Well, listen, I'm going to cut it here. I do hope maybe you find some of those photos. And like I said at the yep. beginning, I want to thank you for doing this. Not exactly the, con- the conversation I expected, but in. I'm in always fact, throwing people curveballs, Dan. Well, no, see, and that's stu- and that stuck with you even here. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I don't never seen anybody else take the stage dressed as you know one of the founding fathers. So, you know, you made your a bit bed. of a fetish. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, thank you, Sam. All right. Thank you, Dan. Talk soon. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.